we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And our guest this week is Philip Linderman, who is a retired Foreign Service officer and wrote a piece for us just recently. It's on our website, cis.org, on our Cuba-specific immigration policy, specifically about the agreement we made with the Cuban government some, I think, almost 30 years ago at this point about issuing a minimum of 20,000 visas per year to Cubans, regardless of the category. It's an interesting arrangement we don't have with anywhere else. His piece called for ending that and gave some background and some thought. And so we're going to talk about that. But first, Phil, thanks for coming in. I appreciate your doing this. And if you could first just give listeners a little background. How did you get into immigration? What is it you did? That sort of thing. Sure, Mark. Thanks for the invitation to come and speak. So I am a retired, as you mentioned, a retired Foreign Service officer, three decades plus in the State Department much of that time overseas. In the Foreign Service, we have cores or cones, as we we say. And I was in the consular cone. That was the mission that was dedicated to helping American citizens abroad. That was our first mission, the high priority that is and should be. And then in addition, the consular team in embassies and consulates abroad is dedicated to the visa issuing process, passports, and so forth. A lot of time is spent, as you know, as the work of the center in many respects, dealing with visas. And so that's that's my background. Right. So interesting. So where did you serve overseas? I served, uh, run through them quickly. I served in Port of Spain, Trinidad, and Santiago, Chile. I served in Havana, Cuba, which I think we'll talk more about that. Uh, I served, I went from communist Cuba to post-communist East Germany. (laughs) I served there in a consulate for several years, spent some time back in Washington, went to the OAS, detailed over to the OAS where I worked. Organization of American States. That's right. Right. Yeah. Here in Washington. And I was working on human trafficking, trafficking in persons there for a couple of years. So that put me back into the Western hemisphere. Spent some time in, in Washington. You know, it's a it's a career in the State Department where you're both abroad as well as here in Washington, typically. And so I spent time there. So you were mainly in Latin America is what it uh, That was largely to, right. it. Latin America sometime in Europe after I went back overseas to Ecuador, to Guayaquil, Ecuador. We have a big consulate. And from there back to Washington, then some time here. And then Mexico, I went to the border region, northern Mexico, Nuevo Laredo, and finished up my career abroad working in the U.S. mission to the European Union in Brussels. Interesting. Okay, good. So what was it like being in Cuba? We, don't, we didn't have an embassy there then. It was kind of a pseudo-quasi-embassy, right? That's right. What we had 
I mean, it was a bit of a diplomatic fiction because for all practical purposes, yeah, in 1977, President Carter and Fidel Castro, they agreed that we Americans would take back our building, which basically had been abandoned when we cut diplomatic ties at the very end of the Eisenhower administration with Cuba. And basically, the place was empty. So we went back in 77. We took the building back over. But diplomatically, we were part of the Swiss embassy. Ah, interesting. But again, as I said, it's a fiction because for all practical purposes, it was a functioning American embassy. A couple of symbolic things. We didn't fly the flag. Our principal officer didn't have the title of an ambassador. But the Cubans dealt with us as if we were the American embassy in all respects. Right. Kind of like in Taiwan, we have something called an interest section, but it's an embassy. Everybody works in the, they're all foreign service officers. It's listed in the State Department list of overseas posts and everything. It basically is just the sign that's bolted on the door says something different. So, so interesting. So how long were you in Cuba? I was there for three years in mid nineties, 95, 98, I think it was. Fidel Castro was still very much riding high in the saddle. He was elderly, but very much in in charge and had survived the turbulence of the end of the the Soviet Union and all the subsidies that Cuba had received. And so that was the uh, special period or whatever they call that. That was a special period, which is a little bit of the backdrop to the migration deal that President Clinton and Castro concluded after the rush of the Cuban rafter episode. But, yeah, if you uh, could tell us a little bit about that. So that happened like shortly before you got there, right? That's right. Okay. So the regime had been tottering largely. We can probably find some of this still on YouTube. Castro was maneuvering because uh, the country was simply an, an economic ruin. And uh, whether he would survive probably actually came on the table and he was doing everything he could. His security forces, would they fire on all the rebels who were uprising and discontented because they didn't have enough to eat, et cetera, et cetera. So, very so they term- were basically worried about being Ceausescu'd is that, kind of what yeah, it amounted to. That, that's exactly right. right. If you think back to that period when the regimes in Eastern Europe were collapsing, I mean, I remember reading somewhere Castro was convinced that both East Germany and the Czech Republic were serious communist countries. <laughs> they would survive the collapse of the Soviet Union. He was surprised when they went down. Right. Uh, so, yeah, very much in the air that you, you can be Ceausescu'd. Right, right. So how did the migration thing, the rafter crisis, which was what, 93, 94, I think? How did that happen? What's the background of that? So the background on that was when Castro realized there was this great movement, discontented people, he pulled back his border guards and said, essentially, a few people don't want to stay here and be part of the revolution, then leave. And so thousands, tens of thousands of people building you know, homemade rafts and taking other very unworthy vessels out to sea went and headed north to the United States. This was a reprise a little bit of what Castro had done with the Mariel, the famous Mariel boat lift from 1980, which I'm sure you, the center sure. has explained about many times, but it was the same sort of strategy. And so a lot of people started leaving. This was during the Clinton administration. And President Clinton, when he had been governor, actually lost re-election in Arkansas because of the earlier, the Mariel boat lift, because there were a lot of detainees in Arkansas. There was a riot at Fort Chafee, and he lost his re- So he had a special, I think, sensitivity 
to the political possible ramifications of this issue. So what kind of agreement did they come to? What happened? In 94, 95, through a process of negotiating, they came up with a couple of things, but the central points were one to the wet foot, dry foot policy came about, whereby Castro previously had not accepted any migrants, Cuban migrants who were intercepted at sea, having them returned. He would not accept that. So before this agreement, Clinton had ordered the Coast Guard to send some of these folks to the U.S. base in Guantanamo. Exactly as you said, Clinton and the Clinton team was very aware of the volatility of what was taking place. Mm -hmm. So there was no agreement previously for the Cuban government to accept the return of these people. And that began. The rest of the sort of sausage making there simply was that if a Cuban migrant at sea reached terra firma, reached the United States, that person could then be processed under the Cuban Adjustment Act, et cetera. So that's the dry foot part. That's they get the to the foot. beach, they got in. Exactly. Right. Intercepted at sea, they were returned. So there was a process set up by which the Coast Guard would actually bring these rafters into a pier. It was not too far away from Havana. And in the early days, we went out there to see the return of these migrants. Basically, they were, their names and all their identity information was taken. They were put on buses and returned to wherever they came from in Cuba. We kept a record of who they were. Okay. And what was the point of that? The point of that was a subpart of the deal was an agreement that Castro did permit American diplomats to keep up, very loosely, to keep up with these returned rafters. Oh, so to make sure there was no retribution? Was that the idea? That was exactly the idea. Okay. That was part of the political calculus that the White House had agreed to. So for a long time, we, we carried out a program. We called it the Monitoring Program of Returned Rafters. And we would, in fact, since these people came from all over the island, we would go to their homes, literally, on special trips, and we would do a short interview with them and find out what their fate had been after having been returned. Interesting. We kept that program up for a long time. Through the years, after my time in Havana was over, the Castro government and his successors cut that back considerably. But for a while there, for several years, it was a robust part of this return policy. So what is the rest of the deal? Part of the deal was Castro agreed that we would be able to return illegal immigrants that were caught at sea before they got to the beach. What was the sort of our quid pro quo part? Well, then the other part of the deal was we agreed to accept or give Cuba a quota of at least 20,000 legal migrants that would be processed yearly. Right. Now, as you know, if you did the normal INA numbers for family reunification immigrant visas, you're going to get a few thousand at right. most. Castro applied his strategy of always sort of trying to drive away his political opponents, get them off of the island, and then perhaps combining it with the idea that once they're in the United States, they will send more and more remittances to the country. Right. He saw this as a clearly as a high priority in the negotiations. Now, I understand he originally wanted 30,000, at least a quota of 30,000. He got 20,000. And uh, so the White House was then confronted with the idea of how we're going to legally get to a 20,000 number. And, right. that, and that's where they used the INA's authority for public interest parole. 
Ah. Uh-huh. And so from my point of view, this is basically totally blowing up the original intent of public interest parole, which was, if you read the, the language of it, and I, I, mean, I know the, the center has done extensive research and provided the history on this, a very interesting history. This was a measure by which the Congress was going to let foreign nationals come without a visa, and the premise is they can't get a visa, on a case-by-case basis where there was a humanitarian interest or a public interest in having that person come temporarily to the United States. Yeah, this is parole, which is not criminal parole. It's just the same term as immigration parole. Precisely. Now, the negotiating team decided that they could take that authority and essentially parole Cubans in in the Havana migrant visa process in Havana. Hmm. But the first challenge was, where are they going to get the numbers of applicants to get to the 20,000 a year quota. Right. So Castro had then to permit what we call the special Cuban lottery. Simply Cuban nationals who wanted to be considered to be selected in this lottery wrote in their information, their name, identity card number, address was basically all they had to do and put it in an envelope and give it to us, either through the mail, the Cuban mail or simply drop it off at our embassy, which we called at the time the United States Interest Section. So then this information was taken and computerized by INS. This was all pre-DHS. Right. And so they built out tens of thousands of names and went through a process of selecting winners of the lottery. Somewhat like the diversity visa lottery globally, but focused specially in Cuba. And without even the sort of minimal, almost laughably minimal requirements that the diversity visa lottery has about education or whatever. This was just anybody, right? I mean, uh, that's right. Yeah. Anybody, anybody who was an adult. And the, the premise was if that person was selected, we agreed with INS, we State Department, we would process them as if they were an immigrant visa hmm. applicant. Interesting. And so then, you know, we set up a system drawing these winners. They were notified. They prepared their documentation. They came to the intersection for an interview. They presented paperwork, police check, medical, et cetera, as if they were that applicant. And then if they were selected, and the vast majority of them were selected, Mm -hmm. they would be able then to fulfill the 20,000 quota. So we would just let them in. And then under the Cuban Adjustment Act, they would then get green cards after one year? That's right. Unbelievable. Okay, so now that lottery was interrupted by COVID, is that correct? To bring it fast forward, what's the situation or what was it before COVID? What was going on? Yeah, well, before, I mean, that process started in 94, 95 in Havana and rolled along, I think, in 2007, long after I had left Havana. It was formalized by DHS during the George W. Bush administration into an official program. Then it continued knocking down the 20,000 migrants yearly until 2017, pre-COVID, when you may recall the, all the controversy about the so-called sonic attacks. Right. It was right. in the media. Without getting into those details and whatever they are, by then it was a U.S. embassy. President Obama had formally renewed diplomatic ties in 2014. But by then, because of that danger, we downscaled considerably the processing, and virtually, as I understand it, that obligation to process the Cubans was transferred to the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown in Guyana. Mm -hmm. Just for listeners, 
we're not going to go into the sonic attack thing, but people were getting sick. Our State Department people were getting sick, and there was an idea that maybe it was an intentional effort by the Cuban government. Nobody, I think as far as I can tell, even now nobody's really figured it out, but the point is that was the reason for the downgrading and the changes, correct? That's right. That's exactly right. And that happens about 2017. COVID then follows, and of course we have that whole global story where a lot of visa processing around the world was curtailed and cut back. Right. And so we come forward to now, you see very recently, the U.S. Embassy in Havana has notified that it is resuming some limited visa processing in Havana. It is unclear to me to what extent the Biden administration intends to resume processing the 20,000 quota a year. Has the Cuban government complained about that? Do you know? In other words, what would happen if we just said, yeah, okay, this agreement isn't valid anymore, which is what you call for in your piece on our site? Uh, Yes. The Cuban government has very much complained about this. There were recently talks, I think last month in Washington, um, between the Cubans and the State Department. Uh, This question came up. The Cubans are complaining vigorously through their state-controlled media that the United States is not implementing its part of the migration accord. I understand as well that they may not be accepting any returning flights. Ah, interesting. In other words, if you're not keeping your end of the deal, we're not going to keep ours. That appears to be their strategy. Interesting. Your piece on our site, it's called Terminate Cuba's 20,000 Annual Quota of Migrants. Why? Why should we terminate it? Well, I think you can probably make a case debate a case about in the period when President Clinton and and the State Department White House team decided to give this to Fidel Castro to respond to the potential loss of life at sea, the turbulence, et cetera, that was part of the bilateral relationship, the migration bilateral relationship at the time. But the question has to be, was that supposed to be institutionalized indefinitely for Cuba to receive this, this special quota? Now, arguably, it's also outside any fair interpretation of the law, and certainly it should not have been institutionalized. I think it's very telling that the Cuban government, just like Fidel Castro, the Cuban government very much wants this this 20,000 quota. As I explain a little bit in the piece, the demand to leave the island, and I doubt this has changed, is almost inexhaustible. And people, you know, people are people everywhere, and they want to find a better way of life. And if they can get out of Cuba, many people will jump at the opportunity to do so. That has always been a safety valve for what is a continuing dictatorship. And I think we have underestimated in this whole process how much this safety valve has been part of the survival strategy of the regime. How so? Well, because Cubans see themselves as able to leave instead of insisting on change. Right. And that's always, okay, that's always in the equation, but we are facilitating that unfairly. You know, we believe in the rule of law, and I would argue that it's something that Congress should take a look at. Ironically, both long-term because we believe in the rule of law in the United States, and also because if Cuba is going to change, and it's still a one-party dictatorship, This has got to be looked at as a way to put fair democratic pressure on this regime. Now, this 
may not be your area, you may not be familiar with it, but are the Cuban exile groups in Miami also in favor of this quota? And if they are, isn't that kind of ironic that they're on the same side as the communist government on this policy? Yeah, I think they probably are. We have to see what they're saying most recently about it. Whenever I see press, general press about the tension on the American side, perspective on the tension between Havana and Washington, and there's a Cuban-American connection in there, they usually don't make too much reference to the, to the quota. I mean, I believe most of them think getting their countrymen off the island is a value that they want to continue to pursue. Although, as you say, I believe they may be underestimating how much this is something that the regime also wants. Right, right. Interesting. Now, I don't know if you follow the border stuff, but there's a lot of Cubans coming across the border, too, taking Biden up on his, what the smugglers call La Invitacion, his invitation to illegal immigrants across the border. And we were not returning Cubans to Mexico. That was a sort of a way of getting around the fact that we weren't issuing visas. But just recently, we're now there in small numbers starting to send Cubans back to Mexico under Title 42. That's the public health measure that allows Border Patrol to expel people without hearings. Now, that may not last, but that was kind of an interesting development. But it seems to me from the Cuban government perspective, once they're out of Cuba, if they're sitting around in Juarez, Mexico, that's just as good for them as if they made it to Miami. That's a good point. And from my time in Mexico, I was aware for years, everyone's aware of how many Cubans make their way to Central America, Mexico, and go north. Sort of the opposite of the journey of Castro on the grandma, the ship, to the kind of, you know, this is their uh, uh, mythology, not mythology in that it's false, but it's part of the communist mythology that Castro and his friends on a ship called the grandma went from Mexico to Cuba to start the revolution. And now what you've got is all these people from Cuba heading to Mexico. No, it's a great point. It is, it is ironic. To return to your point, the government of Cuba, you know, arguably... I don't know. I haven't seen recently how much money they get to the island via remittances. But every time a Cuban gets to the United States and then gets into the cycle of sending remittances back to the island, the Cuban authorities, the dictatorship there is in a position to skim off considerable amounts of those monies. So they want them, I think, probably not. They would prefer to have them sending money from from well, Florida as be opposed more to, money, yeah, obviously. Yeah. yeah, true. But I get your point. Right. I mean, they're off the island. They're not potentially going to be a challenge to the regime. Now, shifting away from the Cuba thing, the State Department obviously has an important role in immigration. You were worked in the consular area, and that's the immigration. That's where the nexus is because State Department issues so-called non-immigrant, which is to say temporary visas as well as immigrant visas. But there's always been I don't know, a kind of a tension between, at least from my perspective, and this is what I want to get your thoughts on, the State Department's diplomatic goals in, you know, currying favor with local governments, that sort of thing, and their immigration responsibilities, which is to enforce immigration law and not let in people who will overstay visas, for instance. Uh, Even putting the terrorism thing aside, just regular visa overstayers, every one, every visa overstayer represents a failure by the consular service, the State Department. So what are your thoughts about whether the State Department really should be in the immigration business at all or not? 
Oh, it's an interesting question, Mark. I mean, you can go back. I'm sure you remember right after 9-11, there was a movement in Congress to take the visa function away from State Department and give it to then the, they were creating DHS and right. give it there. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. I mean, there is a tension about issuing visas, trying to do that in the context of implementing U.S. visa law, the INA, and at the same time, trying to curry good relations with the country where you are. There's, there's definitely going to be a tension about that. Would that tension be seriously reduced if gradually DHS was put in the chair abroad, DS, DHS uh, agents and officers doing the issue? I think he probably, with time, would come about facing some of the same tensions. That is to say, the people who live abroad, work abroad, are going to be influenced by the fact that they're in that country. And whether you're wearing a DHS hat or a State Department hat, I mean, the, the, I think the implication of your question is that the DHS folks might be a little more hard-nosed on security than sure. maybe the State Department. And, and maybe. Or even not just security, but just compliance with the law. Yeah, you know. maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't dismiss it, although I must say that in, in the span of my career that most consular officers wanted to do a good job and try to implement the law. And, and we have come, particularly since 9-11, a long way in, in reviewing visa issuance decisions within the consular team mm-hmm. once those decisions are made abroad. It is a very inexact science, if it even is a science, to try to make a determination whether a person is going to or not overstay the visa. And, you know, typically, classically, the decision based in 214B in the law is to look at economic and family ties right. of the applicant to ensure that that person will come back. It's a factor, but it's certainly not the decisive factor in whether a person is going to st- overstay a visa. I think our greater emphasis for us should be in this process is to have more domestic enforcement right. as opposed to thinking- Well, I'm that, all for that. Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure the centers, you know, <laughs> yeah. you've, you've probably done considerable research in that because- I think it's just too inexact to expect that the issuing process abroad can be fine-tuned to be the decisive difference in this calculus. What we need is domestic enforcement, and that maybe is where DHS could do more. Interesting. That's a good point. That's a good point. During your career, did you ever have experiences where you had the whoever the chief of mission was, your boss there, either imply, you know, it would be really nice if this person got his visa or rethink this decision you made about turning down this person's visa? That's an interesting question. And that is a case of of changes over my three decades plus in State Department. In the beginning, you might, a vice consul might have felt more pressure from the front office and the embassy or wherever to have a visa issued. Right. But over the course of three decades, the Consular Bureau did a lot to remove outside pressure, even within State Department and within the the system itself, hmm. through a referral process that was tightly controlled. And when I left, uh, it's been a few years since I was actively engaged in issuing visas, but it was a very much tightly controlled. If you were going to justify, even as an ambassador, trying to intervene on behalf of a visa applicant, there was a process that you had to make the case on why that was a proper intervention. Interesting. And so there was, so that, that's an area wh- which got a lot better over my three decades plus. Okay. Well, that's, that's actually encouraging. That's a glad, because remember the, one of the things, the most notorious things about 9-11 was the, you know, the Saudi 
the consular there, the head of the consulate was his motto was every people got to have their visas or something. Like I that. remember and, that quote. Yeah. 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 The 9-11 report, you know, we did read extensively the 9-11 report after uh, it came out and the disaster of that period. Uh, and I think we made some improvements. Our electronic systems got better. Our regulations and control and oversight got better. Can we improve for sure? You know, it's a human process. For sure it can be improved. But I think that there is a tendency in Washington to put everything on the moment when a visa application is adjudicated, to give the visa or not give the visa. And that cannot be the single controlling moment. It has right. to have, as we talked about the, the domestic enforcement, we have to have a process of following that case better than saying it all can be decided at the moment of the interview. No, that's an excellent point, actually. And the analogy to that would be at the border, where a lot of people are, you know, sort of say, well, that's where the illegal immigration has to stop. If they can make it past the border patrol, then there's nothing, it's all over. But you really need both. In other words, immigration enforcement has to happen inside the country, at the border, and overseas, and they all have to work together and pull in the same direction, as it were. Interesting. So our guest has been Philip Linderman, retired foreign service officer, and is a piece on our website. I think we posted it as a, as a blog post. So if you go into our blog, you'll see it called Terminate Cuba's 20,000 Annual Quota of Migrants. We'll have a link to it in the show notes as well. Thanks for coming on the show, Phil. And I hope you'll stay engaged in this issue and write some more, and then maybe we'll have you back to talk about that. I'd love to do that. Thank you, Mark. That's it for today. We're pre-taping this because I am, as you listen to this, at CPAC in Hungary. It's called the Conservative Political Action Conference. It's always been something held in the United States, but now they're doing versions overseas. They're, I think they've done one in Israel or maybe Japan or something. They've done several of them. And this is the first one in Europe, is in Budapest, and I'll be talking about immigration there. Next week, I'll be talking a little bit about how it went, what I saw, learned, if anything, that sort of thing. So until then, thanks for tuning in. Visit our website at cis.org for all of our publications. If you get this on a platform that allows rating or review, please rate and review us, hopefully positively. Uh, and if you have any compliments or complaints, email me directly at msk at cis.org. Hope you tune in next week. 